When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by Football 360. Football 360 is designed to make quality football business education accessible to any person in the world, creating opportunities for people to get access to the industry, grow professionally, or extend their knowledge of the football business. Membership includes monthly webinars with me and then proper industry experts, as well as networking sessions. And the course itself features 11 hours of content broken into 15-minute on-demand video lessons with yours truly. It covers everything related to football finance, including club financial statements, player trading, club valuation, financial fair play, and even amortisation. Oh, so go to football360.online to sign up now and get access to a wealth of resources for the extremely accessible price of £149. That's football360.online. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, how are you? It's lovely to see you, see you in person on Thursday yes. night in the City of London uh, at Palace too. It's, it's, it's very pleasant and uh, I got your bottle of wine, which was lovely. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, it, it was really good to meet up in, in flesh and 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 to, uh, to I did a little bit of recording in your shed on another project. And the thing I want to know, Kevin, is what is Stuart Lee's gardening gloves doing in your office? Uh, well, first of all, I should point out to people that, that doing a bit of recording in my shed is not a euphemism. Uh, <laughs> I, and, and for the love of God, don't let Ali hear you call it a shed. It's a workroom, office space, a studio, Kieran. It's not. I I don't know what Stuart Lee's gardening gloves uh, are doing in my shed, uh, workspace, office room, studio, etc. I I can't imagine that Stuart Lee is given to gardening. Um, uh, <laughs> Ali Ali looks after him, produces his shows, so I assume there was some kind of thirty-five minute routine about gardening gloves in a postmodern ironic style that he did at some stage. I shall I shall look into it. Uh, as I promised to do when you <laughs> came across them on, on Thursday and were very excited. And then completely forgot, mainly because uh I had your bottle of wine that uh, evening as, as well as many other people's. Uh and don't tell the Baroness because I, I think oh, no. I think the debate was when the organizer said, Oh, we've got Kim in a bottle of wine, he doesn't drink. They went, Oh, perhaps you can take it home for his wife. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> it's it's questions day, Kieran. Um uh, my first question is, why are Palace fans suddenly experts in the pub afterwards? All 190 people in the pub saying, yeah, told you Rory Hodgson was the right person for the job. <laughs> <laughs> Liars. But we do have two news stories, uh, Kieran, beforehand. Well, three, if you include the fact that Leicester are arguably the worst team I've seen in the Premier League for a long time. But Premier League clubs, Kieran, look like 
um, and this is something you've predicted for a while, that they are finally going to do a, a voluntary ban on front of shirt gambling sponsorship. Yes, there was a meeting of chief executives of the Premier League. I think it was last Thursday. Um, and some of the noises that leaked out, and uh, you know, people do talk to journalists, and journalists do talk to people in the world of football, is that there is going to be a voluntary van on front of shirt deals. Now, I think this is going to be sort of graduated. So if you have an existing contract with a uh, a gambling company, uh, that, that can roll on. Um, I think we will probably be looking at 25, 26 before it does come in. But then you start to look at the detail. And uh, speaking to some commercial directors, they said, this isn't good news for our club because it tends to be, and in fact it is the case, that the big six clubs don't have front-of-shirt deals with mm. gambling companies because they've got more global sponsors. And in terms of what is available in respect of the money, uh, the, the gambling companies have the biggest wallets because they are the biggest beneficiaries. They've made more money from football than anybody else since the Premier League started in 1992. So the, the smaller clubs are probably going to be the ones that take the hit. But then you say, well, is it going to be anything else happening? And they said, no, because the, the shirt sleeve deals can have gambling sponsors mm. on. So, yeah, that seems to make no sense whatsoever. And it looks like the value of the shirt sleeve deals will therefore go up and the value of the front of shirt deals will go down. And we will still have perimeter advertising for gambling companies. We will still have... Um, gambling advertising on television. And the gambling industry says, well, we've got the whistle-to-whistle ban. And then you start to, again, dig deep. And, and as soon as you get beyond the headlines, you say, well, actually, this is so superficial. This is, this is a lot of tokenism. The whistle-to-whistle ban means that there's no advertising for gambling companies at halftime, but the show can be sponsored yeah. by a gambling company. Yeah. Um, we've even got adverts for gambling during matches on commercial radio so it's not addressing the the broader issues um in in relation to the relationship between the gambling industry and football and, and the gambling industry does very well out of football and the football does very well out of the gambling industry so people say well who are the losers here well we're talking about individuals and yeah, we're talking yeah. about families of individuals and we're talking about friends and loved ones of individuals. And as, you know, I'm, I do have a bee in my bonnet about this because you know, we've worked with gambling with lives. We've worked and spoken to people with, uh, you know, from the big step. I, I've attended a, a meeting at the house of commons um, in, in respect of, of families who had lost people to gambling mm. and it's, it's horrible and not enough is being done because you see the fines which are being given to the gambling companies. And I know we spoke about this last week. Um, the fines are just seen as occupational hazards by the industry. Yeah. Interesting though, Kieran, uh, not long after we started the pod, the government indicated that they would probably be looking at making uh, a ban on gambling sponsorship uh, legal or bringing in into law a ban on gambling sponsorship, and then they rode back a little and said that they would ask the clubs to look at a voluntary ban. At which point, everybody said, "Well, it's not going to happen." Then, 
Uh, and yet it has. I mean, this has come as a, somewhat as a surprise, hasn't it, really, Kieran? Do you, it, is there a moral element here? Is 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 there? A, is it again? Is it timing? Is it is it another of those attempts to show uh, the people that have introduced the white paper that the Premier League can uh, regulate its own affairs? I think you just you know nail nail on head. Um, the timing is is no great surprise, um, and also uh, a further issue that arose in the. Uh, in the meeting on Thursday, is that there's going to be a beefed up owners and directors test mm. uh, applying. Um, and again, yeah, the Premier League said, look, look, self-regulation, we can do it. But but would this have happened had it not been for the white paper? I'm not so certain. And uh, there does appear to be some form of moral stroke ethical clause being brought into the uh, enhanced owners and directors test. And, and let's let's be honest, anything which makes things a little bit tougher has got to be welcomed. Um, but it will effectively probably stop Kim Jong-il buying a Premier League football club and the Taliban. And that's about it. So what, as soon as you go beneath the surface of the headlines... Uh, any com- any country uh, which has uh, good trading relations with the UK, and I'm not saying that you know, investors from the Middle East or from the Far East or anywhere should should be banned from uh, uh, investing in, in in the football industry. I'm I'm I'm, I'm actually pr- pretty relaxed about it. I'm, I'm more concerned about people with a uh, an individual nefarious background. But uh, it again, it's all part of the. The charms, the charm campaign that we're getting from the Premier League at present, and uh, that's the issue which makes me feel quite uneasy. Mm. I think uh, one of those people you mentioned is dead, and one is uh, probably quite opposed to sport in the first place. So <laughs> yes. it'd be highly unlikely if either of them are making a bid for Palace uh, or any other football club <laughs> in the near future. Um, apologies, Kieran, if it took me quite a while to get through that previous sentence I mentioned. Uh, that's because I didn't leave the pub until about quarter past ten last night, celebrating the fact that it took us 95 minutes to beat the worst team I've seen in the Premier League this season. Um, another news story, Kieran, and uh, I always like a news story that has the words secret and bankroll in it. Uh, <laughs> it, it comes as no surprise to learn who who the person who may have been secretly bankrolling someone was. Yes, and uh, hats off to the the Guardian and I think it's the Bureau of Investigative Journalists who who have done some sterling work, not just in the world of football, but this is something called the oligarch files. So therefore it will come as no great surprise. (laughs) Name name your favourite oligarch. (laughs) Sounds like a 70s sitcom. (laughs) It does. It's the oligarch files. (laughs) It's it's Roman Abramovich. Um. And it's all to do with uh, the team called Vitesse Arnhem, who were taken over in 2010 uh, by a guy called uh, Merab Jordania, who was a former Georgian footballer. So far, so good. Um, Vitesse Arnhem just happened to be a sort of a, a partner club to Chelsea. So uh, Nemanja Vitic, so Matic went there. Uh, when he first arrived at Chelsea, I believe Mason Mount has spent some time there. And look, there's there's nothing wrong with this, but it comes down to transparency and uh, being upfront. Because under UEFA rules, um, 
one person cannot have control or influence mm. over more than one club. Now, there's been two investigations by KNVB, the, the Dutch Football Authority, and on, on both occasions they said, well, yeah, we've, we've taken a look. I, I won't do my Steve McLaren accent here. <laughs> we, we've, we've taken a look, and uh, yeah, we're, we're quite happy that there's no sign of any relationship. And I understand where, the, where they're coming from, and certainly you know, in my experience of football, my experience of finance, the best thing to do is to follow the money, if you can. And following money can be very difficult. So it looks as if um, Vitesse Arnhem have had loans of around about £103 million. And this has come from a company uh, effectively controlled by Roman Abramovich in that paragon of transparency, the British Virgin Islands, which then lent money to another company based in Liechtenstein, which was then connected to another company based in Belize. And you go, blimey, that seems, you know, why, you know, why, why not just go and you know, ping, them a, ping them a few quid using an app? You know, it's a lot easier to do this. So, um, you know, and Vitis, Vitis Arnhem, uh, yeah, you know, £103 million of loans for a club which generates income of £12 million a year mm. seems pretty generous. So is this linked to Mr. Abramovich? Again, yeah, we, we can't say for certain, but uh, there there do appear to be questions which we would like answered. And knowing Mr. Abramovich, uh, the one thing you won't get him to do is to answer any questions. Um, but... It's it's further indication that uh, there is not full transparency in football, and whatever the regulatory body, be it the FA, the Premier League, the EFL, FIFA, UEFA, whoever it's going to, to be involved, do have uh, a huge job on their hands. And this would be the same if an independent regulator is is appointed. Um, they might have slightly more statutory powers but if anybody thinks that all of football's problems are going to go away with the regulator i think that's a very wishful and foolhardy approach to take do you think we should ask producer guy to get a hold of roman abramovich and maybe threaten to go on strike and say there's no pod until we've interviewed abramovich <laughs> because he's full of himself that he got a hold of the director of clandidno fc so let's, let's set him a really difficult task and getting Roman Abramovich. A uh, very good interview, by the way, with uh, yes. Tom. Yeah, yeah. Lancet, that. Which has had, um, we've had a lot of very good feedback from. So I'm glad we did that. On to our questions, Kieran. And our first question comes from Graham Joseph. And I suspect this question was probably set um, when the clocks went back mm. rather than when the clocks went forward. Um, because it's an interesting one, but it's something I think that football has been discussing. And Graham Joseph says, given the meteoric price rises for electricity recently, would there be a financial benefit for English-Scottish League games kicking off at 2pm instead of 3 on a Saturday this winter uh, due to the floodlights having to be turned on as it's pitch black come 4.45pm? If those league matches finished an hour early and the floodlights weren't needed, how much would this save a league club in electricity costs. And I, I, I know certainly in Scottish football, Kieran, they, clubs were given the option to mm. kick off earlier, weren't they? And it's a, it's a very sensible suggestion from Graham um, that wouldn't inconvenience people that much and would presumably, as he says, cost, uh, save a lot of money. 
Yes, I, I agree, Graham. On on the face of things, it does have some merit. I think whenever there is a proposal for change, uh, it is useful to have a cost-benefit analysis. And I know that sounds very nerdy in middle management speak and so on. Um, there would be a potential cost savings. But uh, I, I did speak to one or two chief executives of clubs in the lower divisions. And, and, and the response was um, a little bit surprising. They said, we've, we've worked it out, but actually... Our fear would be that attendances would decrease. And the reason for this is that that many people still do Saturday morning shifts. You know, they're they're working in a shop. They they might own own their own place and they're open open until midday or one o'clock. And then they say, right, we're going to pack things up and go and watch the football. That would make it more difficult for them. There's also the issue of away fans. You know, getting to matches is is a trial uh, these days a lot of the time especially given the the challenges that we have with the uh, the transport network um you know ideally you like to get there a couple of hours early so what do you do you you either go to the ground and, and you know uh, have some have some catering should we say or you go to a local pub and do similar so if the matches are now kicking off an hour early the chances of fans having you know fans have to get up pretty early as it is but having to get up a, a further hour early i think would be difficult there is also, as far as children's football is concerned, that tends to take place on Saturday mornings. So there's sort of you've got that regime yeah. of, uh, you know, mum and dad, parents, whoever it's going to be, um, they'll, they'll go and watch their their son or daughter play on a Saturday morning match. Um, yeah, that match normally kicks off at half ten, finishes at midday, run home, change kit, shower, set off, get to the match, and if it's a three o'clock kickoff. It's it's not easy, but it can be done. You move the kickoffs forward an hour, that becomes more difficult, and then there's a decision to be made. You know, does does the son or daughter want to play football on a Saturday morning more than they want to go to the match in the afternoon? Yeah, you know, and potentially one of the either the football club's going to lose out or the kids' team's going to lose out, mm. um, and, and I don't think that's good for football. So I, I absolutely understand the merits, and you know perhaps greater efficiency in terms of the way that we we design floodlights, we use floodlights, there's a greater case for having uh, solar power and so on. Uh, I think those are issues, but I'm not necessarily certain that moving kickoffs forward an hour is going to benefit clubs financially overall. So, you know, Ken, I'm really interested to hear that response from uh, football club CEOs because every time I mention, and I suspect it's the same for you, every time I mention the, the sanctity of the three o'clock Saturday kickoff, there'll be 20 people who say, what is this, 1898? Those days are long gone. And yet it seems that there are still practical reasons for kicking off at three o'clock on a Saturday, which I'm, I'm actually quite pleased to hear, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, think, about from, think about your Saturday routine. Yeah, it is geared towards the three o'clock. Um, and, and it's the same yesterday. You know, I, myself and the Baroness, we, we have a uh, yeah, we have a Saturday routine which involves uh, <laughs> careful. Uh, this is this is bourgeois. <laughs> it's it's it, it's brunch. Uh, she she has her eggs Benedict. I have my avocado and sourdough, and she has a, <laughs> a bit God. normally quite a bit of prosecco. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm the designated driver who, who's knocking back the. Uh, the, the the iced tea uh, but that's, that's 
Getting and hyped. to bring that forward an hour, it's just, it's just not on, Kevin. It's just not on. I, I could imagine, Kieran, that to, Eggs Benedict at half nine in the morning would probably be a, a tad wearisome. I, I get you smashed avocado at that time of the day. Probably your your taste buds haven't quite kicked into gear and then you're flooding them with iced tea. Um, for my uh, routine, I, it wouldn't be much of a sacrifice to get to the Porson's Arms at 10 o'clock in the morning rather than 11. <laughs> I would, if I had to do it, Kieran, I would do it, to be perfectly honest. You're a trooper, Kevin. A trooper. Of course I am. I love my club, Kieran. It's as simple as that. <laughs> Dedicated fan. Uh, Jordan Beck has our next question. And Jordan says, my question is about MLS and its structure. So the league has some absolutely looney tunes financial rules from <laughs> several types of money designated by acronyms GAM and TAM, and you'll have to explain those, Kieran. Discovery Thanks. rights on already established players, different player classifications like designated player, homegrown player. But my question is about the league's single entity structure. What are the benefits for the club's for being a league operating this way or are there none and it's just the price of admission to get into the league in the first place if this is and this is a bit of real life from Jordan <laughs> <laughs> not that Jordan's prone to hyperbole at all but Jordan says if this is your first foray into MLS financials welcome to hell <laughs> I found it heaven. <laughs> As you can imagine. Well, yeah, I like researching topics. financial rules, of course. <laughs> oh, I can just see you now with an iced tea in one hand, spreadsheet in the other. Uh, obviously, you haven't, you've only got two hands, so I don't know where I'm fitting in the, the smashed avocado. The Baroness spoon-feeding you smashed avocado. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the days, Kevin. Those are the days. Early, early in the relationship, perhaps. On the honeymoon, maybe, yeah. <laughs> Um, all right, so, so let's let's take a look at the MLS, and uh, I, th- I think the key keywords is the the single entity structure, and, and by that it means that the MLS is a franchise organisation in which there is no promotion or relegation. Mm. Um, there's also a salary cap of four point nine million dollars, which you're going, well, hold on, how did David Beckham play there? How are they hoping to sign Messi and so on? Um, they, they, you've got things such as designated players, which are effectively um, you are allowed star players who don't who are, who are exempt from the, the overall salary cap. So there's there's lots lots of rules, and GAM stands for general allocation money, and TAM stands for targeted allocation money. Mm. And one of the things that they like in US sports franchises is that they they like to spread the trophies around. So therefore, for those clubs who have not been in the previous season's playoffs, for those clubs who have not qualified for uh, CONCACAF competitions and so on, um, they get additional funds. So it's a bit like, you know, if if Palace and Brighton didn't qualify for Europe, um, they would get extra money from a different pool from the Premier League, and perhaps they'd be able to cite that they'd have first dibs if there was anything similar to a draft scheme, which of course we don't have mm. as far as far as football is concerned. And the aim of this is is to make sure that we don't end up with a procession, um, you know, as as far as trophies are concerned. And there is an element of merit to that. If if you take a look at the NFL, I think that, you know there's been sort of twelve. Uh, NFL champions in the last twenty years, or so, you know, somebody would tell me the actual stats, um, and and that's good for 
sort of you know the sporting chance and integrity issues. Um, so so that's that's the issues there. Now you then say, well, what's what's the purpose of sport? Now the the purpose of football in the UK, and you know you you looked at the history of here of, of what happened here. You know, football professional football started off in the north of England because. When when the legislation was it, the legislation was changed in the Victorian era, which meant that uh, uh, that factories couldn't be open all day on a Saturday, and they effectively had to close at midday um, on a Saturday. So so what were what were the factory workers going to do? So the factory owners said, "Well, we'll set up a football club, and, and we'll charge we'll we'll take some of their salary off them by having professional football," and that, and that worked very well. But there's always been sort of th- this this concept of promotion and relegation. Um, and, and that's that's one of the great things about football. Uh, American sport is aimed at benefiting the owners first and foremost. And what investors dislike most of all is risk and uncertainty. Yeah. And the biggest risk that exists in football is relegation. And if you think about it, if Palace were playing Leicester yesterday and there was no relegation from the Premier League, yes, it would be great. It's always great to get a 95th-minute winner. No denying that. But it was the fact that it gave you three points after you've had a bit of a yeah, a bit of a, a poor p- period of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's in the past. That's gone. That's gone, Kieran. That's that, yeah, ancient yeah. history. Ancient yeah, yeah. History. yeah, like, yeah like, you, you've already crowbarred in twice this week the fact that Brighton are in the FA Cup semi-final, Kieran. So that's... That's that's fine. I understand, but yeah, okay. we're, we're, but let, we're let flying. We're year. flying high in the Premier. We're unbeaten in April, Kieran. We've got a hundred percent record <laughs> in the month of April. Let's focus on that, shall we? <laughs> Would that result have meant as much to you if relegation didn't exist? No, fair point. So, and, and that, and you look at some of those results yesterday. You know, Bournemouth beating Fulham. Uh, you know, the, <laughs> the, you know, the the late goals here and there. Uh, the great thing about football is is that relegation is as exciting as getting into the Champions League, as is winning the Premier League, and therefore that is something that they don't have in US sport, uh, and something that if, when you talk to American sports fans, actually that the, the fans are quite jealous of, yeah, because football isn't about the joy; it's about the misery, um, and it's about turning misery into joy. Um, and, and I think that's that's something that they don't necessarily have in the US. But that is because the aim of the MLS is to make money for club owners. Now, as we know, football in this country doesn't make money, but there is greater emphasis on the other stakeholders, especially the fans, uh, in terms of the opportunities to move up and down the leagues. You can only do that in the US if you go and pay what's known as a, an expansion franchise fee, where it will cost you, you know, a, a couple of hundred million dollars to to set up a team in a new city um, to join the MLS, it, it, it's all very well for you, Kieran, being cavalier about phrases, you know, joy, misery of relegation. You're eighth in the table. Where you're. Oh, oh, are you? (laughs) (laughs) All right, we've already spoiled my morning by reminding me that Bournemouth won yesterday as well. So six, are you, Mr. Lardy-Dar, Kieran Maguire? (laughs) 
Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Our next question, Kieran, comes from Joel Sperry. And uh, Joel's got a bee in his bonnet, uh, <laughs> as, as well as a bugbear, and uh, a, a penchant for quotation marks. Uh, Joel says, I have a question related to a bugbear of mine. You often see, and I like this, journalists, in quotation marks, ranting about young players going to other clubs for a low fee or a low amount set by a tribunal. They often use the market value, in quotation marks, as a metric, and exclaim the fee is way below their market value, exclamation mark. What irks me is in these cases, the player's contract has run out, so they are effectively a free transfer. Ergo, they have no market value, and this metric is erroneous. The fee scheme, as far as I know, is to compensate the club for the costs involved in developing the young player. And my question is then, how much does it cost for a club to develop that player? Uh, I like to think that Joel wrote that question at a similar time of the morning with the same sort of hangover that I've got at the moment. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it's not possible to allocate uh, the overall academy costs to an individual player or or even perhaps uh, more than one player. And the more that you look at academies, the, the more uncomfortable you, you can potentially get. Uh, I think I've said this before. I know one person who's in charge of an academy who has a budget of £6 million um, for FFP purposes. Uh, that's what goes into the books. And yep. he says he's told by the club to spend just two. So it, it, trying to get a definitive picture is is uh, a, cha- a challenge. Uh, there's also the fact that there are players at academies who the scouts or the the academy development manage, managers will know effectively from day one are not going to make the grade, yeah. but are there to be opposition for the players yeah. who are going to make yeah, the grade yeah. because you, you you need you, you can't just have uh, you know blow up dummies as as, as opposition. Um, so it, it is very tricky. Um, if we start to look at academy costs. If you've got a Category 1 academy, then there are uh, a, a number of uh, checks and balances. There are commitments to education and, and in, uh, player development and, and as an element of aftercare and so on. So that's going to cost probably between 6 and £15 million pounds a year. Potentially that could be higher if the club has an awful lot of people at the academy. If you take a look at Manchester City, for example, uh, their academy players have the option to go to uh, the private school St. Bede's, where fees are £12,600 a year. So you know, should that should those costs be included as part of the overall costs, or is that just a, a way of the, the club 
uh, showing its commitment to developing the education of the young people coming through. And I think education is uh, is a big issue because there has been work done um, in respect of player development. And one of the, the interesting things which will affect, we'll be looking at EPP later, yeah. but one of the things which concerns me most of all as somebody that works in education is that if you take a look at the data, uh, an academy player who comes into football between the ages of 9 and 11, um, on average, they have higher than average uh, educational achievement. Yeah. But by the time they are 16, they are well below the average. Mm. So what are football academies doing? For the players that make it, it's fantastic. From the players that don't make it, they're turning young people from having above average educational attainment to mediocre and I think that's one of the indictments of the game. And I think the this is where the game lets people down. Other stakeholders in those young individuals, such as the parents, you know, are, is their focus too much on you know, my my young child yeah. is at the academy of X, X club. And all of our focus is going to go on to the football side of things because we want them to be the next Harry Kane, Marcus Rashford, Phil Foden, whoever it's going to be. And do we take the eye off the ball in terms of their broader education, including their financial education. You know, there, there's a, there was a tragic story this week about Craig Bellamy, who yeah. is now bankrupt. Yeah, and uh, you know, we we know from talking to people, you've you've known people who've been professional footballers. I I speak to the PFA on a regular basis, and and they are trying to do something about this. Um, but there is a there is a huge issue with regards to the protection of these these young people, both as academies players, as young professionals, and also as as senior and and past professionals. That they they are not being looked after by the industry, um, and for too many of them, there's a friend for every pound that they earn. And as soon as the pounds disappear, those friends disappear as well. So. I'm, I can't give a definitive figure to Joel, but certainly as far as the Category 1 academies are concerned, probably in the region of 6 to 15 million. A Category 2 academy, you're probably looking somewhere in the region of 1.5 to 2 million. I think in terms of Man City, Kieran, and St. Bede's, you talk to people at the club, I think there is a genuine commitment to educating their young players there. Mm-hmm. I don't think there is any... Uh, cynical backstory to that. But we, we joked earlier about getting Roman Abramovich on, which we we obviously can't afford him. Uh, I don't know where you'd pay his money now. He's being sanctioned either. But Tony Pulis is somebody I would love to talk to because he did a brilliant interview recently because he spent a year researching um, the education and the finances of academies. And for somebody who's... I think old school is probably the word he used about Tony Pulis. His views were surprisingly modern and quite scathing of the way young people are coming out of academies and the way they're mm. being treated. So it'd be if we could get a hold of him, I'd really like to talk to Tony Pulis about that. And I'd, I would urge people uh, listening to this to just Google the words Tony Pulis and academies because what he has to say is fascinating, if slightly worrying, I have to say. Now, Kieran, we have two questions about Stadia now. Um, and mm. we were we were talking a couple of weeks ago about the the 
SoFi Stadium in LA, which was yes. going to host the World Cup final until it turned out it was only three yards wide. So it couldn't do that. <laughs> um, and this question comes from Phil Chater, and it's an interesting one off, off the back of that, I, I presume. Uh, Phil says, I was recently watching a YouTube video about the American stadium to feature in the 2026 World Cup, including the MetLife Stadium in New York, the Lincoln Financial Field in Philadelphia, and the Hard Rock Stadium in Miami. My question is, though, as FIFA say you can't use sponsored naming rights or stadia in their tournaments, will they have to recompense the current sponsors? I think this, the simple answer here is no, right. because it's all part of the negotiation arrangement. Um, as we know, FIFA is a charity. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. We've known that to our cost at times. Yeah, which is why, um, which is why they didn't pay you for that two, two days' work you did for them, Kieran. <laughs> well, it wasn't two days, but yeah, it was... Yeah, yeah Kieran, um, it would have been two days if I was claiming for it. <laughs> I'd have invoiced two days. Eight I'm, weeks... I'm Jerry would be proud of you. Yeah. Gianni Infantino, eight weeks, uh, £2,000 a day, thank you. <laughs> which to him is perfectly reasonable money, I'd imagine. Absolutely. Um <laughs> When FIFA uh, is doing its inspections of those countries which are applying to host the World Cup, um, one of the things they'll be saying is, where are the matches going to take place? And if they say, well, you know, we want a match to take place at the Hard Rock Stadium in Miami, FIFA will simply say, well, if you want it to be called the Hard Rock Stadium in Miami, the deal's off. There's no way you're going to be allocated the tournament. Right. So you have two choices. You either find another stadium which does not have a corporate naming ar arrangement, or we we say we simply say no now. And and the reason for this, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm this is about the third time I've I've defended FIFA in recent weeks. <coughs> Shocking. Um, it was noted. It was noted in the Porter's arms yesterday, Kieran. I think the, <laughs> I think the phrase lapdog was used at some stage. Jenny's lapdog, my word! How, how mighty have fallen as me. I've, I've gone from the, I've gone from the Marquis Smith of the football industry to Jenny's lapdog. I think that was a full song, wasn't it? Jenny's uh, lapdog. <laughs> Probably. I think, I think he sacked a drummer halfway through it. Did you know? <laughs> um, but FIFA is very, very hot on brand protection and sponsor protection. Because if you take a look at their rules when it comes to ambush marketing, um, you know, can you see from, from their point of view is that if they went to, let's say that they went to the, the Miller Light Stadium somewhere in Texas, and of course they've got their global sponsor for alcohol is Budweiser. You've, you've got a conflict of interest. So, so that is why FIFA say we will not have any uh, sponsor names as far as the individual stadiums are concerned. Now, whether that stops the the commentators on TV and radio from using the sponsor names, whether that stops the fans referring it to it as, you know, as the Lincoln Field or the Hard Rock, I, I think it's probably unlikely. Mm. Um, but for for corporate purposes, for, for branding purposes, it has to be you know, the stadium in Miami, the stadium in New York, the you know, the uh, they might give the location of the stadium, but they wouldn't give um, the uh, the sponsor name. And therefore, uh, they would not give any compensation either. They either say, you, you move elsewhere, or you don't get awarded the tournament. And it, and it is very much between uh, a rock and a hard place. Do you like that one? Uh, yeah. Um, 
Josh Stedman has a question about Stadia closer to home, unless, of course, you live in America when it's uh, the other way around. Uh, Josh is a Brentford fan, and he says Brentford announced a new stadium name last year. The Brentford Community Stadium will now be known as the G-Tech Community Stadium for 10 years. My question is, how does that all work? For example, what sort of price do you think the deal was worth? Would some type of cost reduction be offered to GTEC if we get relegated? Does all the money go to the club to spend how they want? Or is it agreed that some will be held aside for maintenance and development of the stadium? What sort of returns or benefits would GTEC expect from this? These are all interesting, detailed questions, Kieran, that we, we don't really talk about when we talk about sponsored naming deals. <coughs> and also, it has to be said, I mean, it's a remarkable piece of architecture, that stadium as well. The the way they've fitted it in to that little tiny corner by the river is incredible. Yeah, and get, gets a good atmosphere as absolutely, well. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Um, well, the simple answer, John, is that it's a private contract between two parties um, to, to which nobody's entitled to, to, to third-party access. Having said that, um, I would expect, uh, from GTEC's point of view, there to be step-ups and step-downs with regards to right. Brentford's status uh, within the football pyramid because, uh, you know, they, they're a damn good side. You know, they've, the match yesterday at the Amex was, was a cracking game of football. Um, and uh, if they're in the Premier League, then... They are more likely to be on television, which is going to be beamed to 188 different countries. They will be hosting Manchester United and Liverpool and Chelsea and Manchester City and so on and Arsenal um, and, and getting more attention than in the championship. And, and no disrespect, if it's Tuesday night at home to, to Reading, how many people are tuning in? So I would expect from GTEC's point of view to to have uh, agreements with regards to the division they're in. Um in respect of how the money is used, it could be that some they might insist that some of the money is is ring fenced for academy purposes, but they're under no obligation to do so. In respect of the amounts, difficult one. My understanding, as far as uh, sort of to give an analogy, you know, at Brighton at the Amex, Brighton are getting a hundred million pounds from Amex over, I think, a ten or eleven year period, but that includes front of shirt, and again, that would decrease um, when Brighton are relegated. Oh, don't don't tease me with things like that, Kieran. Don't don't just. Oh, I've now got my fingers permanently crossed. You've said that. I do wonder though, for all that Brentford Stadium is fantastic, and they clearly would have got a good deal from GTEC. I do wonder how much they've lost by not having KLM painted on their the, the roof of their stand, which was <laughs> right underneath the flight pass into Heathrow. You couldn't. That must have been some fantastic advertising for that airline for for many years, which presumably came at a cost. I would have thought, given, wouldn't it? Oh, oh, certainly, yeah, yeah. There's there's no way a commercial director wouldn't uh, be pointing out in. Yeah. This is the number of flights which go through Heathrow. Yeah. Um, this is the average number of people on a flight. This is the average wealth. Yeah, this is the average income of a person flying on those flights. Um, you are targeting ABC One, a- ABC One customers. Um, it, it's it will be worth a fair, play, fair amount. Yeah. Having said that, whether you saw that uh, advert for KLM just after you've taken off or just before you landed, you still couldn't help thinking, "Oh, it's a bit late now." Uh, I wish I'd thought about that before I booked this flight on British Airways, which is two days late. Um, 
I've been putting off asking this next question, Kieran, because I know it's going to come with giggles. Uh, but also, it, you're just going to. I mean, this is this is the perfect Kieran Maguire question, isn't it? It's the proper financial accounting question, and it's got some double entendre in it. <laughs> yes. Which I can only suggest Ian Beresford has done deliberately, Ian, because I know what you mischievous accountants are like. I know most of you come into the accountancy for the sex. You stay for the jokes. Uh, Ian Beresford says, as an accountant myself, I like a bit of double entry. But can Kieran... Oh, so I left the pause here, Kieran. You didn't giggle. Is that... I, 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 I was trying my hardest. <laughs> As the, let's go back to the start so I can say it again. As an accountant myself, I like a bit of double entry. But can Kieran help with what happens in a leveraged buyout situation? I know the debt ends up on the balance sheet, but where does the other entry go? Is it a share premium, goodwill, or something else? The cash is paid to the previous shareholders, so it can't be that. Kieran, I'm afraid you will have to uh, explain what double entry is for those of us uh, who don't uh, know uh, the account, the accounting version of it anyway. Um, for people that are not familiar with double entry, all that it is is that if you think about any financial transaction, it has two impacts. So if you buy a, let's say you buy a new computer, you've got more computer, which is one asset, and you've got less cash, which is another. Or you could buy it on credit, in which case you've got more computer, you've got more laptop, and you owe money. So your asset goes up or your liability goes up. Or thirdly, you could buy it by issuing shares and swapping the shares for the laptop, if it was belonging to somebody else, and you've got more assets and more equity. So it's simply the fact that under the accounting rules, balance sheets Always balance. That, that impressed Finley, who's wandered in with a wonky chomp, which I now have to. Which the trouble is, he now likes me to play with his wonky chomp, and that, that is not a euphemism. Um, it is. It is now. It is. So, so I'm, 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 I'm now having footsie with a dog. Uh, hold it. The, the Baroness is coming to the rescue now. The Baroness is playing footsie with my dog. Um, okay. Try not to say double entry while the Baroness is here, Kieran. Yeah, yeah, certainly not. Certainly not. Not, not the number of years into our relationship. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm proud or ashamed, Kieran, to think this is the only podcast in the world where someone's wife is playing footsie with a dog under the table and a wonky chomp while we discuss double entry uh, on a, what well, is this ostensibly meant to be a serious football finance pod, Kieran. We have the ear of, of MPs. You took part in the, the fan-led review, Kieran. You have the phone number of every chief executive of every football club basically in the world. And here we are doing childish double entendre about double entry while your wife tickles a dog's feet under the table. It's just, this is why we're not winning prizes, Kieran. It's simple yeah, as that. It's, it's, it's- it's also why we've still got listeners, possibly for the. Yes. <laughs> well, maybe we don't know. We don't know that for certain, Kieran. To be perfectly That's honest, then wait till we get to our next question about football in Kazakhstan. That will challenge. Ah. That will challenge them even more. <laughs> carry, <laughs> yes, <it'll> carry on. <laughs> right, but back to Ian's question. What happens normally is that when there is this thing called a leverage buyout, and a leverage buyout where effectively a a company is created to, to take over a football club and, and that company 
borrows money. But the thing to note is that there is normally a new co, a new creation. And in the case of the, probably the most famous leverage buyout, which is Manchester United, a new company was created called uh, Red Football. Red oh, okay. Football borrowed money from banks and it used that money to buy the shares of Manchester United. So therefore, on the one side of things, it had an investment in shares. And on the other side of things, it had the, the liability, which was the money which is owed to the bank. So, so that's how it is done from uh, a double entry point of view. Now, that's interesting, Kieran. All the discussions we've ever had about Man United and the leveraged buyout, I was I was not aware that it was a new company that was set up to do it. So that's always the case, is it in a in a leveraged buyout? You you'd really have to do that, yes, because uh, there has to be an entity which is borrowing the money, and the old company can't borrow the money because it's not yet owned by the uh, the new shareholders. So yeah, it, it is a complicated uh, right. issue. Um, and if you take a look at Manchester United's uh, annual report, you will see that there's probably about 25 to 30 cl- uh, companies involved with names such as Red Football, Red Football Shareholder, Red Football Joint Venture, and so on. And uh, against it makes it makes life more challenging. It certainly like makes life more boring, which is you know yeah. the reason why it's only people like me that do it. So it, it's taken on trust then that uh, if you're lending the, the millions, billions necessary to buy Manchester United to the Glazers, even though it's a new company, you will go, well, it's the Glazers, so they will be able to pay it back. So there's no risk. There's, there's no sort of uh, doubt or confusion about whether this new company could pay those loans back. Um, no, th- th- there is a risk um, because the, the new company has to generate the cash from the running of Manchester United, which would then allow it to meet the instalment payments. And in the case of Manchester United, uh, Manchester United is a cash cow. If you take a look at the early years of the ownership of the Glazers, Manchester United in some years was paying more than £100 million a year in interest because the the markets lend, uh, they ask themselves sort of two or three questions. A, uh, you know, do we have the money to lend? B, does the borrowing party um, have the ability to repay? And they weren't certain. So I think they were charging 1.14.25% on some of the loans, right. um, which which is a you know, crazy rate uh, for uh, yeah, for 2005 investment. Uh, but they, they will do an assessment of management in terms of do we think that the the new managers, the new people in charge of the company, do they have the ability to continue to generate the cash to allow the business to repay? Right, okay. So Finley, was that Finley going or the Baroness coming back in? That was Finley going. (laughs) Okay. Um, Now, some of you listening to this may be thinking, ah, we know what that Kevin's like. He he likes a little joke, indicating that the next question is about football in Kazakhstan as as an example of a boring accountancy question that's coming up. No. The next question is about football in Kazakhstan, Kieran, and it comes from Oshian Worth. I hope I've pronounced that Oshian. I think that is it a Welsh name, I believe, Oshian. Um, Oshian says, what are the finances like in Kazakh football, specifically for my club Shakhtar Karaganda? 
How much does it cost? That sounds that sounds like a bit like a Harry Potter spell, doesn't it? Shakhtar Karaganda. <laughs> How much does it cost to run a football club here? And is there any potential for clubs to actually make money? For example, if they manage to qualify for a European competition group stage. And one more question, if I may. Yes, of course you may, Oshin. Can you find out approximately how much a footballer can expect to earn here in Kazakhstan? Um, well, I thought this could be... Yeah, we've always been saying, Kevin, that there's going to be a question where we're going to to admit defeat. Yep. And uh, I I was about to admit defeat. No. But I am indebted. I am indebted to uh, my very good friend uh, Ruslan Nazibov, and Ruslan is the the chief executive of Tufan FC in Azerbaijan. Right. And it just so happens that I'm presently teaching Ruslan uh, because he is a, a student at the University of Liverpool. He's doing our football MBA course at present, uh, and he's, uh, he's, he's a fascinating guy. Uh, and I'm hoping to, to fly over to Azerbaijan and do a bit of teaching there because it's one of those places I've never visited, and I, I love to, to get the opportunity to go to new places. So, yeah, Ruslan knows uh, the, the, the Kazakhstan position quite well. Um, and he said, as far as clubs' uh, finances are concerned, all the clubs tend to lose money. They will only break even if they get into either the Champions League or the Europa League. If, if they get to the Europa Conference, again, probably still losing money. Right. Okay. Um, and what they have to do is that they have to rely on player trading. Uh, you know, to, to develop good players with with ideally you know moving them on and, and making some money elsewhere, uh, but it, but it is a real challenge. Now, as far as the finances are concerned in Azerbaijan, on average, um, players are probably on four to five thousand uh, dollars a month. So that's you know sort of eight hundred to a thousand pounds a month. Uh, oh, sorry, a week, which is which is good. Good, you know, reasonable money. Um, the the top players in Azerbaijan, he estimates probably on twenty to thirty thousand US dollars per month. The highest paid player is the Croatian winger Marin Tomasov, uh, who plays for the champions Astana, and he's estimated to be on sixty five thousand US dollars a month. So yeah, that's yeah, about seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars probably about £600,000 a year. Right. Um, so it's it's a, a decent amount of income. Uh, it's not comparable with the big leagues in, in Europe, uh, but uh, it's it still shows that football is a, a aspirational career uh, in, in countries beyond the sort of the major countries in terms of the ones that regularly get to the, the latter stages of, of European football. Yeah, and is is there an equivalence though, Kieran, between Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan? Because Azerbaijan is is gas rich, isn't it? So are they more? Do you, do you think the similar rates would apply in in Kazakh football? Yes, yes. I mean, uh, this is this is uh, Ruslan's. You know, he because they they share sort of common uh, language and dialect. Okay, uh, right, he, he knows okay. an awful right, lot okay. about Kazakhstan football. So, so those are the figures he was giving me for Kazakhstan. Right. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, Tim Fitzgerald has our pre-penultimate question, and Tim was saying, uh, "I was wondering," says Tim, "when the next EPPP is due to be renewed, and given that the EFL are the ones who have the young talent that the Premier League want." Is there not an opportunity for them to drive a better bargain next time around? And how far can they push it? Um, 
Might be well, worth might be worth explaining, Kieran, for new listeners what EPPPP stands for. P stands for. Yeah, EPPP stands for the Elite Player Performance Plan, and uh, following England's four-one defeat to Germany in the 2010 World Cup, there was a a lot of soul searching and navel glazing by people uh, in in the football industry about. We're a bit rubbish, aren't we? Even though you know, if that uh, Frank Lampard shot, which had, did go over the line, that would have made it 2-2. Yeah. And, and, you know, who knows? Who knows? Um, but uh, the elite player performance plan was introduced by the FA, but it was very much shaped by the Premier League. And the way that it works is that there used to be a rule in football which meant that you could not recruit uh, young players into your your youth academy if they lived more than 90 minutes from the the training facilities um and this was to, to this was to protect these young people um but that was then abolished and what we now have is uh different categories of academy and we were talking about this earlier in in terms of the costs of developing players um the the aim of EPPP is to produce more homegrown talent. Although uh, we did see Gareth Southgate, the England manager, saying only 10 days ago that he was concerned that the proportion of English qualified players in the Premier League had dropped as low as 28%, uh, despite Brexit, despite uh, EPP itself uh, the the supporters of EPPP will say well hold on you know overall we seem to be getting more English qualified players into the game although they might be at a might be at a, a lower uh, a lower level um, there, there there are commitments to uh, provide funding so that there is a four percent transfer levy which uh, goes into a professional game youth fund which is there to to help uh, the clubs develop in terms of the relationship with the EFL, um, the the Premier League uh, voluntarily initially gave things called solidarity payments, which said we will give a proportion of our TV deals to clubs in the EFL. And because of the success of the Premier League TV deals, Clubs in the EFL get more money from the Premier League than they do from their their own TV deal. And then I think it was around about 2012, 2013, um, clubs in the EFL weren't particularly keen on EPPP because it would allow effectively at (laughs) 24 hours notice for a Premier League club to to come in. I I, I would go and film that. Finley opening and closing doors. If people don't believe it's true, <laughs> no, it's rather him opening doors. If only he'd learned to close them. Um, the, the Premier League said, we want EPPP and we will offer you a fixed compensation tariff. And uh, for example, let's say that you are Morecambe or Accrington um, and you've got a really good, talented young person in your academy. Um Manchester United or, or Chelsea or Arsenal or Brighton or Palace, they can come along and they can say, we want this this, this child to join our academy um, and that's it. 
you know, and and then the next day, you know, so you've you've put two or three years, you put four or five years into uh, you know, developing that young person in terms of their footballing ability, and they disappear. Now there is compensation given when the player breaks into the first team, but let's say that you you take the the next Marcus Rashford or Harry Kane or Phil Foden from Accrington's academy, they play a hundred games in the Premier League, and they're pretty good. Uh, you get £1.3 million in compensation. And you think you're probably worth a bit more than that. Mm-hmm. So so that's that's the issue as far as clubs in the EFL are concerned. Um, some have therefore closed down their academies. Can they say, what's the point? You know, if we do get anybody good, then they just get snaffled by somebody else. And uh, A, we get very little compensation, and B, it takes a long time for that compensation to come through. So I think that's the position where the EFL clubs have the opportunity to develop a, a, a striker harder bargain. Um, I don't think they'll be able to do that because the Premier League uh, did threaten to cancel solidarity payments yeah. unless clubs in the EFL agreed to the terms of EPPP. And you know, the problem is, is that once they'd initially had this additional money, that flowed through into to their wage budgets and, and they don't want those wage budgets and transfer budgets to go down. So I still think the Premier League has the stronger hand. And there's lots of good things about EPPP, but the downside of it is that the levels of compensation uh, to the development clubs are inadequate. Um, it's not like Germany uh, as well. Uh, the DFB, which is the, the governing body of German football, um, it has, I think, 250 regional centres, which are not necessarily affiliated to clubs in terms of player development. Uh, so it has. It certainly has some merits and anything which helps education. We've already spoken about the education of, of children, and that's what we are referring yeah. to. Yeah, that they are not commodities. They are not assets. They are not uh, part of player a player trading model to, in order to make money for clubs. They are children, and therefore they deserve protection. I think that is potentially some of the good bits, but the, the down the downside is that it is effectively a scheme which rightly or wrongly, has allowed the bigger clubs to get the better talent for less money. Yeah. As the late uh, and very, very great Barry Cryer once said to me, naval gazing is like train spotting, but for ships. Uh, uh, (laughs) Then he also added, that doesn't work written down. Um, Our final two questions, Kieran, are about women's football. So I'm actually going to put them both to you together, if, if I don't mind, because yeah, sure. it makes yeah. sense to answer them both at the same time. The first one is from Kurt Stevens, and Kurt Stevens says, how does the financing of women's football in England actually work, as in what percentage of funds come from commercial activities, ticket revenue, TV deals, subsidies from men's sport? And Samuel Wide says, I support Bristol Rovers women, who at the time of writing play in the sixth tier of English football, I was wondering, says Samuel, if I suddenly came into a fortune, how much would I have to spend to get the gas girls to the top flight of women's football? Right. If we take a look at at the top tier of uh, English women's football, the WSL, the clubs there um, will make, at the very highest level, uh, around about £5 million. 
some of the clubs will make little more than than one million. And uh, if we take the accounts of Manchester United women's team, because I think they are currently top of the WSL, their total income last year was five million, of which eighty percent comes from the commercial arena. They only made, I think, it was three hundred and seventy-seven thousand pounds from ticket sales. So right. you know that's right. not a lot. And and, and this is. This is the big challenge for the women's game. The average price to see a WSL game is eight quid, and and that's great, you know, because it, it you know it is it it does attract people to come along and watch. But in order for clubs to to break even, you know, we're we we've got tuned in the men's game to paying you know thirty quid for a ticket in the Premier League. Uh, you've got. 30 quid being charged by some clubs in the championship. Yet there's a case for saying, you know, perhaps a fair price would be in the region of 18 to 20. How does the women's game persuade fans who have become familiar with, with buying tickets at relatively low prices to pay a, a fair amount more on a proportionate basis? Yeah. Um, so trying to generate more money as far as the women's professional game is concerned, is a challenge in terms of ticket sales. Commercially, I think there's there's certainly a case for the women's teams to be looking for independent sponsors to the men's team because I think they're, they're, they're targeting their potentially different demographics. It gives them a slightly different identity um, and, and so on. But talk to the commercial directors to say, well, yeah, that's one more thing that we have to do on top of what's an already yeah, a fairly challenging inbox that we all have. Um, in the case of uh, Samuel's question, um, if he does win the lottery, inherit money, comes up with an amazing product and uh, becomes uh, a rich individual, how much would it cost? Um, I, I have spoken to um, some of the people in the women's game with regards to this. And the answer was, um, it's actually going to be quite challenging because we are seeing more and more uh, big clubs from the, the top two divisions uh, start to develop their their women's team, which, which is effectively at the grassroots. Yeah. And, um, and, and moving through this, um, you'd have to be looking at you know, player player development, a training environment, support off the pitch as well. You know, so do they have training facilities? Where are they going to play? That's going to be uh, you know, a challenge. It doesn't have to be a huge uh, price tag, but just effectiveness, uh, just effective enough to, to first of all attract and then retain players. Now, in the case of Bristol, um, there's only two. Yeah, Bristol's a big city. And there's only realistically going to be two teams fighting over the talent. You have Bristol City and Bristol Rovers. Um, the South West is underrepresented as far as women's football is concerned. So I think there are certainly opportunities. Um, as far as women's football is concerned, going from Tier 3 to Tier 2, and then the big step from Tier 2, which is effectively semi-amateur or semi-semi-pro, to Tier 1, which would be the professional game, that's where the costs start to rise. Um, and this is where the investment would be required. So it's difficult to put a number on it, but I was talking to somebody who has a involved in the uh, WSL championship and they say well you know our total wage budget for the year is around about 250 grand um, so it doesn't have to be 
well, yeah, 250 grand is a huge amount of money yeah, to me, but uh, it, it's it's not going to be as huge as in the men's game. And also, if we take a look at the case of Manchester United, that, that's a football club which didn't exist you know, four years ago, yeah. and it's now top of the WSL. So it's probably going to be a bit less money than than you think, uh, Samuel. So you know, so keep keep working in your shed on that amazing product, and you too can be part of the WSL in four or five years. Speaking of which, I must I must ask Ellie what those gloves were doing in our shed office workroom. <laughs> uh, we might have, in the opposite corner of the country, Kieran, to Bristol, we might have a real-life example because uh, PIF, the owners of Newcastle United, have said they will invest into their women's team, or I think currently are in the second tier or the third tier women's football. So over the next season or two, we might find out exactly how much it takes or is necessary to get a women's team into the top flight of women's football. Thank you for that question, Samuel. Thank you for all our questions. Uh, thank you to all our patrons. Uh, if you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to arguably uh, the world's least professional football finance pod, go to patreon.com slash price of football. <laughs> if you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at price of football.com. And in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, as always, thank you to everybody who's supporting us at Patreon. That is it's absolutely fantastic. We know that times are challenging and tough for everybody, um, and uh, it's very, very kind. Um, also to everybody for, for interacting. Uh, and there's some people who are showing uh, photographs of their Price of Football shirts yeah. all over the world. Yeah. We had one from Kyoto, which was, was absolutely amazing. Um, there's another way in which you can support the show. And that, that's to go on to your app through which you download uh, The Price of Football and your other podcasts, of course, and, and give us a review. Uh, it, it, uh, it doesn't matter what you say on the review. It's the fact that there is one. And uh, you can write whatever you want. You could even say, we have a bit more professional brought in here. <laughs> um, you could even say you could have it presented by uh, John Steed from The Avengers. And the edge from you too. Oh. That would be a pretty surreal show. That that, that would be very surreal. Uh, one of them being fictional and dead, uh, yes, <laughs> and, and the other being a, a musician. <laughs> I was about to be scathing about musicians, and but that would be fair. John, I mean, how that was the coolest program ever, wasn't it? The Avengers. It was. John Steed and Emma Peel. Ma, wow. I'm off to, well, actually, I'm off to ask Ali about the gloves, but I'll think about John Steed after that. Bye, everybody. Bye. The price of football. I'm for the